Hey, Kara. Hey, Chris. How's your cold doing? My cold is persisting, but... <laughs> Lingering and persisting. Oh, but but I have a new malady this week. Is oh, what's the new one? It, well, it's new and it's not new. I told you a few weeks ago I was probably going to come back with poison ivy again, I think, right? Remember when I had it no, all over my didn't. hand? Oh, yeah. So when I had the poison ivy all over my hand, I finally went to the doctor for a well visit and then said, oh, by the way, look at my hand. And they were like, oh, my. And they gave me a bunch of prednisone and cream and it went away right away. Um, and then I went back and finished cleaning out behind my garage. So I now have a new case of poison ivy all over my hand. So the, the question is, how bad does it have to be before I go to the doctor to get prednisone versus do I really want to just wait till my hand turns into that giant puffy and flame mess that it was before? I mean, count yourself lucky. I, I get poison ivy so badly that the creams do nothing and they have to inject me with steroids and give hmm. me like a three weeks dose of steroid pills. I react so strongly. But yeah, none of the surprises me. That's a very crystalline story. But the good news is your cold isn't COVID. That's true. And I just got my negative COVID surveillance test today, which then brings us to our guest. Well, yeah, you know, because COVID is all the rage. All the rage. Sadly. So what better topic than COVID to use as an excuse to bring a world famous virologist to town, right? So uh, <laughs> I like the face that, that she's making. World famous in my own mind. <laughs> my mother's a fan, too. Well, you know, all research is me search, right? So that voice that you hear is Dr. Shannon Bennett. Dr. Shannon Bennett is the chief of science and the Harry W. and Diana V. Hind dean of science and research collections and the associate curator of microbiology at the California Academy of Science. And she is here at the University of Alabama to give an allele lecture. So those of you who haven't heard us before, allele stands for Alabama Lectures on Life's Evolution. And she'll be giving a talk tonight on the evolution of a pandemic, sort of lessons we've learned from the SARS-CoV-2 experience. I don't think that's the exact title, but that is the gist. She was previously associate professor at the Asia-Pacific Institute of Tropical Medicine and Infectious Diseases and does work as a virologist would on, on viruses, right? And some of our favorite viruses, as my students know, I love to talk about schistosomiasis. So I really enjoyed watching a video of her explaining how you pull a schistosome out. She also studies dengue fever, something I have run across in my travels to the Pacific. And so her research made her extraordinarily relevant in a way that she's probably not super happy about, but that has kept her busy lately. Welcome to the show, Dr. Bennett. Shall we call you Dr. Bennett? Shall we call you Shannon? What are your pronouns? How shall we address you? Please call me Shannon. I'm she, her. I only make my mom call me Dr. Bennett. And it usually Fair means enough. I'm in trouble. I like this. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to make my family call me Dr. Akbach from it's here great. on out. You think it gives you more respect? It doesn't really. But <laughs> it, it, at least oh, the I'm accolades sure. are nice. It's funny how a family member can turn an honorific into a snide kind of sounding thing, right? Like, oh, Dr. Bennett. You're oh. in trouble now. <laughs> you didn't pick up the dog poop. Please use your virology skills to pick up the dog poop. <laughs> Only you are qualified to do so. If you so. can disdain... Uh, <laughs> the title of this podcast, The Sausage of Science, is kind of one big pun to learn about how the sausage is made, kind of all the things that never make it into peer-reviewed publications about how the scientist became a scientist and then 
all the horror stories from the field that you never actually get to include in peer review pubs. And so we'd love to hear kind of your origin story. How did you get into virology and microbiology and tell us about that journey? And please make sure you include amoebic dysentery, malaria, and feces, because I know it's there. It's there, big time. So I was an innocent, a bumbling along, the whole world was my oyster, kind of undergraduate student, not really knowing what I wanted to do when I grew up, if I even wanted to grow up. And I had an opportunity to go to West Africa, Liberia, to do a volunteer stint. I was very interested in science, but I was also interested in theater. So I got a gig where I taught grade five math in the daytime as my day job. And in the evenings, I ran a theater production with my students and we were funded by the Canadian version of the National Institutes of Health, basically health funding to promote, you know, primary health care themes in our theater productions. But it was a great night job. We had a little gas lantern. There's no power running water. And so we could just go around and put on these little skits. Because I was the only white person around, I always got to play the pig or something real pink. <laughs> so it was really fun. So anyway, we had a great time. You know, what I didn't know in all my naivete uh, and coming from my Canadian origins of privilege, where I had all my vaccines and I had my anti-malarials, was that the local malaria parasite Plasmodium falciparum had long evolved resistance to the long as in six weeks ago, long for a virus, uh, to the anti-malarials I was on. So a couple weeks in, I get malaria and Plasmodium falciparum, which is transmitted by a night-biting mosquito, if you didn't know. So I remember one morning rolling around in my bed net and waking up too close to the edge with a bunch of mosquito bites. So I think I know the seminal event that kicked that one off. So, you know, a malaria, if, if you've never had it, it's no fun. It's fever and chills and they go in cycles. And in between times, you feel great. So one of those great times, I probably ate something and I picked up entamoeba histolytica or amoebic dysentery, which... Entamoeba is a little single-celled eukaryote, kind of like Plasmodium, and it's fecal-orally transmitted. So this is where we get back into the, the shit thing, uh, where basically I must have eaten contaminated food or water that had been contaminated with feces, and hence the parasite. So mm. if if anybody around here has gotten Giardia, it's it kind of runs the same way, right? That's This is a mm. parasite that's fecal-orally transmitted, lives in water, infects a so lot of puns. things. So yeah, puns. it runs the same way. Run, oh, did I run? Yeah. So, uh, so a hallmark of Entamoeba histolytica Sorry. is that it likes to tunnel through your microvilli in your intestine and make holes and ulcers, and so you bleed into your stool. You make it sound so violent. Uh, like microscopic violence. <laughs> it's interesting. It's an insult to your system for sure. And you can tell mm. that by if, if you turn around and in inspect your feces, which everybody should get into the habit of doing. There's like the shit color charts and, yeah. and like texture and all that. And smell. Yeah. There are Instagrams and TikToks for this. So the classic hallmark of Entamoeba histolytica is a coffee ground look to your stool because the blood in your intestine that you slowly pass looks like coffee grounds. Yes, sure enough, I can attest to that is exactly what my stool looked like. Mosquito-borne Plasmodium falciparum, fecal-orally transmitted Entamoeba histolytica. And then I also developed a wound that became infected with Staphylococcus aureus, probably. It was oh a definitely goodness. Staphylococcus. You know, sample 
the average person, about 50% of us carry this bacterium. So we had two eukaryotes and one bacterium, right? So who's going to win this game? But anyway, the bacterium is a kind of a commensal that sits on our skin and it doesn't usually cause problems, but it is an opportunist. So it got into the wound and my legs started to blow up and I had postules of gargantuan compared to Chris's hand size inflammatory events. <laughs> It wasn't pretty. They had to get me help. So they, the nearest place to get me help was actually a leper colony because this is like way up in the Liberia-Guinea border, far from everything, no power, no running water, no hospitals. And But there was a leper colony with nursing staff. So they drove me over by motorbike to the leper colony and put me to bed and began draining my leg and giving me quinine for the malaria and hydrating me for the Entamoeba histolytica. But while I was convalescing in that leper colony, and you know, leprosy is also caused by a bacterium that's not an opportunist. It's it's actually more complicated elements to its transmission between humans. You have to have long exposure times and even maybe genetic predisposition to infect. That's why leper colonies exist, because families who are at risk of getting leprosy all come and live together in the leper colony. But it's got incredible stigma around it. So I was convalescing in the leper colony and just thinking about all the different ways that parasites got around my immune defenses, got around the ecosystem that I was working through in very many different ways to be parasites. And I kind of think of it as a way of life. So I really decided at that moment that I wanted to study the ways that parasitism evolves and unfolds across the different branches of the tree of life where parasitism rolls out. And it does. It evolves all the time in many different branches of the tree of life. This reminds me of Alfred Wallace, because wasn't he like in a malarial fugue when he thought of natural selection and wrote to Darwin? There was definitely fever-induced entertainment of all kinds of notions. Uh, this was in 1989 the first attempted coup before the breakout of the Liberian Civil War happened. And so I heard the machine gun fire and everything. I was basically in lockdown. Literally in the shit. Totally. In the, like, like, in every way possible. And people were killed. And I'm Canadian, so this was the first time I'd ever even seen guns, right? <laughs> they were machine guns. So it was very, very frightening. But everybody in the leper colony was safe because of the huge social stigma of leprosy. Uh, but everybody outside of the leper colony was not safe. And so if I didn't have the conviction before that moment that I wanted to study parasites, at that point, it was clear that they'd saved my life. And so I was like, oh, okay, sign me up. That's fascinating. Yeah. The beginning of your story reminds me very much of an interview we did yesterday with a graduate student over at Northwestern named James Gibb. His dream growing up when he was much younger was to be a singing paleontologist and your story starts with a theater troupe. I wonder, did you ever have that idea of I'm going to combine my theater talents with virology and microbiology? Did that ever cross your mind? <laughs> Only because I never dreamed it was possible. I wanted to be a park ranger when I was wee, because we did a lot of camping and things. So park ranger was where I was going for. But the thing I loved about it the best was the sort of the theatrics of it all, right? Storytelling. And so I think if more scientists embraced not only their scientific creativity, but also their different forms of artistic and creative expression, I think the world would be a better place. So singing paleontologist. So your primary research, I don't think, has been on SARS and COVID. It's been dengue fever. Is that right? Coming back from that 
pivotal experience. I did uh, noodle around with worm parasites for a while. So nematodes and worms, really nothing evolves as fast as viruses. So I moved into viruses and what I really wanted to study in my postdoc, and I started on dengue virus, but in general, I wanted to ask the question, what's the evolutionary pathway that viruses take when they emerge from non-human animals into humans? And is it common? So I kind of think of it as the comparative evolution of viral zoonoses. Like, what does that look like? And so dengue is a perfect example of a virus that evolved first in non-human primates. And then actually, if we back the time machine up, they probably evolved in mosquitoes. So I've looked at a lot of mosquito-borne viruses to see how that trajectory plays out. They all come from zoonotic origins when you put it on the thousand-year time scale. And then I've also worked on hantaviruses. Hantaviruses aren't mosquito-borne, but they're expert jumpers at jumping into a range of small mammals. And whether it's a rodent or a shrew, completely unrelated, by the way. They're brown and small, but that's about it. You know, how do these viruses navigate so many different kinds of hosts and take advantage of those opportunities? Worked a little bit on flu. And so hantavirus and flu have segmented genomes, and so they can shuffle the deck of their genetic innovation a little bit better. The flaviviruses, which is dengue and Zika and West Nile and chikungunya, which I've worked on, are all single-stranded RNA viruses like SARS-CoV-2. So different viruses solve those opportunity challenges differently, and that's really what I'm interested in. I've worked in Costa Rica. I currently generally work in the South Pacific in Samoa and American Samoa. And when I was in Costa Rica, the only sort of mild threat there was dengue. When I was in American Samoa for the first time, it was during the Zika outbreak. And one of the things that we noted was that people were kind of underwhelmed by Zika at the time, even though that was the height of its epidemic because they had dengue and chikungunya. And they were like basically saying, well, this doesn't really hurt like dengue or or chikungunya, so it doesn't really bother us. This leaves me wondering. It's almost like, wow, wasn't that quaint when we had those epidemics and not a pandemic? So have dengue, chikungunya, Zika, have these diminished in their virulence? Do you see an evolutionary path, or is it simply that we are so distracted by COVID that we are ignoring all of the other epidemics we've been beset with recently? Yeah, I mean, I think what we talk about, definitely there's bias there for the new shiny thing, and especially if it's a nasty thing. So, for example, in 2013, chikungunya, another mosquito-borne virus, was introduced into the Caribbean from the old world, and it was exactly the same time that the Ebola outbreak of 2013 happened in West Africa. And so the news was full of Ebola, which is very serious. But in terms of the number of people impacted, chikungunya, in a matter of months, had probably infected almost a million people in the region and got almost no time on the air. Could you describe what that is? Because that's something that I'm not familiar yeah, with. So see? what is chikungunya and how does it present? So first of all, it's hard to say, right? It sounds like a chicken. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it, it comes actually from an African dialect, I think of Swahili. It literally, I think, means bent over because the joint pain is so severe that it sort of causes you to curl up into a little ball of owie. Dengue plays out as a fever illness that causes muscular pain. So incredible body pain playing out in the muscles. Chikungunya, different family of viruses, but transmitted by the same mosquitoes as dengue, 
also presents with fever most of the time and causes instead of muscle pain, extreme joint pain. And it can persist. So, hmm. you know, we think about long COVID now. So chikungunya has long chick. It definitely can persist many, many months out. And it's associated with many of the things that we see in viruses that last a long time, including anxiety, depression, hmm. mental illness, as well as the physical illnesses. So really, if you had to rank them, Zika could be the mildest, except if you're a fetus. Mm -hmm. And then mm -hmm. dengue is neck. It can be quite a bit more severe, and that hasn't changed. And then chikungunya is really bad. And what has changed is that Zika became massively distributed amongst people. Zika and dengue are actually incredibly closely related. And so prior immunity in a population to dengue actually changes the way Zika plays out in terms of the disease syndromes. It, it can And vice versa. And so we're not hearing maybe as much because the viruses are kind of working it out. Right. The whole Zika dengue thing is fascinating. But also, do you think any of the COVID-19 related precautions have reduced incidence of any of these as well? Like people might not be going out as much to be exposed, but mosquitoes do get in the house. So I'm not sure if there's anything that could be related there as yeah. well. So I have a shared collaborative project in Nicaragua, which has less than 6% vaccination rate. They have incredible challenges accessing vaccines. A collaborator of mine, Dr. Eva Harris at UC Berkeley, decades ago established a, a cohort there where we could enroll people and they've enrolled people to study Zika infected pregnant women, for example. And we are documenting a very severe outbreak of dengue from 2019, so just before COVID hit the scene. So there was definitely dengue right up to that point. It's definitely the highest attack rates seem to be in places where people are this is a day-biting mosquito, unlike malaria. So if you're out and about in the park, on the school ground, in construction, a lot of people across ages get it. And they get it if they have an outdoor style of living or if they have very leaky houses, you know, like with no screening. So usually dengue goes in waves. We're seeing waves with COVID. And Zika goes in waves. And so probably dengue hit a big boom in 2019, at least in Central America. And it might have a little take a break and then we might see it again. It doesn't go away. Like we look at the genetic sequences and they're the same. It just kind of went under the radar. It's the same virus, evolved a little bit, but it's not like it got imported from somewhere else. So, and it's not like, as Kara sort of alluded, it's not like we've done anything to diminish it, its impact. Definitely not. And I mean, dengue is always evolving. You know, we have lots of mutations we're watching to see what meaning they have to people and to disease transmission. That's really the hard question to answer. We usually will pull an article by our guests to focus in some of our questions. So we want to get into how the sausage is made. So we to read the methods and all that stuff. And you've got a lot that have come out recently with lots of co-authors. I honed in on one that I thought would broad implications for a variety of diseases. And for us as anthropologists who are off looking at sociocultural factors. So this article is called Patterns, Drivers, and Challenges of Vector-Borne Disease Evolution with co-authors Andrea Swy, Lisa Cooper, Lark Coffee, and... Darrell Capon. Darrell Capon. Thank you. And I'm going to quote, vector-borne diseases are emerging at an increasing rate and comprise a disproportionate share of all emerging inf infectious diseases. In our field, we talk a lot about epidemiological transitions and argue whether there are new ones and things about emerging and re-emerging diseases and, and why that may be. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what distinctive patterns you did find and what's driving the emergence of so many vector-borne diseases. 
every time I think about that paper, I have to chuckle because um, my colleague, Andrea Sway, studies Lyme disease in ticks. So she's focused on bacteria that evolve a bit more slowly than the viruses, and she's focused on tick vectors. And so we have a competition, actually, an all-out competition where I would always say viruses are the biggest threat and mosquito-borne viruses are the biggest threat, and she's always voting for ticks as the biggest threat. And the main finding in that paper was that she won, that ticks... Ticks are more important than mosquitoes. And I was just so frustrated that, that uh, she won. But anyway, it's all, it's all good. It's really great. It's good to know what we have to worry about the most. But ticks, watch out for ticks. I mean, honestly, they have an amazing array of not only bacteria, but viruses, many, many tick-borne viruses that are either known or new, and they're evolving at an alarming rate. But regardless of whether it's tick or mosquito, as the vector, the pattern we did find was that regardless, invasive species and large scale landscape level habitat change, habitat destruction, and certainly climate change associated habitat destruction is one of the most important drivers. The other thing that's important is the distribution of humans relative to those pathogens. So the relationship between humans, environmental justice, landscape destruction, and invasive species like invasive ticks and invasive mosquitoes is all important and puts the most vulnerable people from an environmental justice lens in harm's way from emerging infectious diseases. And that's something you know, many people observe empirically for Zika. The people that were hit the hardest were you know, ground zero in Perambuca, Brazil, where the teenage pregnancy rate was you know, starting at 12 or 13, and there was very little infrastructure to support, you know, piped water and and the education of girls and women was really what put that community at risk, feeling the biggest impact from Zika and invasive mosquitoes that transmitted it. So thinking about humans and how they're related to vectors, invasive species in particular, and landscape destruction was what led to another paper that my postdoc led about modeling human contact rate with vectors as a way to get better insight, better granularity, a better understanding of emerging infectious disease dynamic. I think that's a really wonderful point to highlight because of its relevance with the COVID-19 pandemic, all the origin stories of how it jumped to humans and all of these things. And, and people always like pointing a finger and trying to pinpoint a singular bit of blame. But when it comes down to it, it's always just going to be a matter of time because of our constant habitat destruction and encroaching in different areas. Something like COVID-19 could have popped up anywhere, anytime. And so this idea of pointing a blame at, you know, one single population group of people or whatever, is just, as we said earlier, bullshit, because we are all collectively taking part in the problematic practices that lead to diseases jumping from one species to another, which is my long monologue way to bring us to COVID-19 and actually talk about the evolution of it. Yeah, like the low-hanging fruit for us was, you know, sociocultural factors matter, and we kind of already knew that. We threw that out there. But what we didn't expect to hear was that ticks won. I'm so upset about that. I'm still not over it. I'm surprised you don't know this, Chris. Because so I grew up in Michigan and as a child, I was basically told a tick bite was equivalent to death. It was like burned into me as a child to fear ticks above all else. My husband is originally from Oklahoma. They have ticks, but they don't have Lyme disease the way Michigan has Lyme disease. 
and I got my first ever tick bite in Oklahoma. And like, I had a panic and broke down and he had no clue what was wrong with me. And I had to tell him how literally from age three through 12, I was told if I got a tick bite, I would die. <laughs> so this doesn't surprise me in the least. The reason it surprises me, and I do appreciate a good tick as the parent of three young children when I lived in New York. I lived in Dutchess County, which had, I think, the highest rate of Lyme disease in the area at the time. And every night, the kids would run into me, and they go, tick check, and I'd have to pick them up and check their taint. You know, we have to check all the areas of the bodies. It's like a funny family story that we share, like tick check. But when we moved to Alabama, we got to stop that. I think talking about shit and feces and crevices, right? You really, you don't have to own your crevices when it comes to ticks. And, and so the good news is that a tick has to bite and feed for a long time to really transmit Lyme. And so you don't have to panic. No, Shannon, instant death, clearly. No, not instant. No, no, no. <laughs> Just check your crevices or have someone you love do it for you within 24 hours and you're just fine. Unlike mosquitoes, which can take a 45 second bite and nail you with chikungunya, dengue, zika, or malaria and still do a lot of damage in a very short period of time. So I don't know if really ticks one in the end of the day. Right. After all of this, I had this beautiful segue leading to COVID. So, you know, COVID is evolving. No surprise there. And everyone got hit really, really hard with the Delta variant, but we've seen other variants kind of fall off. Like I remember Lambda being, you know, said in hushed whispers, like that's the next one to watch. But then I've basically heard nothing about the Lambda version of COVID. And so maybe you could tell us a little bit about what is going on with the COVID-19 evolution and variants and what might be happening with its virulence and transmission. Yeah. So do you guys remember the halcyon days of summer when we were talking about Douglas? Do you remember Douglas? D614G? I yeah. don't. I have no memory Douglas. of Douglas. I so this is like not this summer, but the summer before. That was 10 years ago, clearly. So the major, the wild type version of SARS-CoV, which defined the strains that were being sequenced in China in January all the way through to the summer were basically replaced by mutant strain that had many mutations. But the main one that got people concerned was D614G. 614 is the position in the spike protein sequence. And the spike protein is the main protein for binding to our host cell receptor and getting into this host cell and making hay. And then the characteristic, the amino acid that characterized that ancestrally was D and then transformed to G. So it turns out that that mutation was very successful. And so everything to this day has that mutation. Like Douglas persisted, very successful. So everything that we're looking at today was derived from Douglas. They're all different forms of Douglas. And it turns out that if you look at where that mutation is, it's deep inside the spike. It's in like a, a space inside the spike that actually is associated with a little a flip that the virus does. It flips the receptor binding domain out, and that makes it receptive to binding to the host cell. And that mutation just helped it stay open, flip open and stay open as its sort of native state. So it's very exciting and it's a very fit virus strain that's gone on and persisted and created many descendants. And so everything we talk about, whether it's lambda or alpha or, or beta or delta. So alpha was the UK strain. That was the next exciting one. We saw that a year ago fall and it was highly transmissible. And so that's been renamed alpha to keep us all in the same alphabetical I, I, 
I don't know. I, I don't think we've named Douglas with a Greek letter because it's too far in the past. But the other one that was of note was the South African strain, which uh, has now been called Beta. Alpha and Beta have kind of basically been replaced by Delta. So Delta, Lambda got everybody excited, but just went away. And so Delta now has many, many, many sublineages. So Delta is very successful. And many of its sublineages, folks are watching. The sublineages have been given Greek letter names, AY4, for, and its derivatives, AY4.2 is something everybody's watching. So the virus is evolving, for sure. But connecting that evolution to something that's really important to us as a job yet to be done, right? So it was a long time before we understood the importance of Douglas. And even associating increased transmissibility to the alpha variant took time and the right population level data to draw that conclusion. With Delta, there's definitely increased transmission and infection efficiency. And the next layer of things we care about is immune escape, right? So is it an immune escapee or is it just super efficient? So I think about the immune system as our fire extinguisher, our vaccine primed or natural primed fire extinguisher. And, you know, that when the spark of a coronavirus variant lands in our nasopharyngeal passages, if we have immunity, we'll just put it out. The fire extinguisher will knock that spark out. But with Delta, it's just so efficient that even if our immune system was misfiring, like not pointed directly at Delta because Delta is a bit of immune escape, or is Delta so efficient that it's making a little bloom of fire before the fire extinguisher puts it out and so sparks can fly to other people. But in general, you put it out, right? And so with Delta, vaccinated people are putting it out. Vaccines are still highly effective against Delta. And when you try to look at the smorgasbord or, or the sort of the cocktail of mutations that are occurring, and there are a lot in all of these strains, it's very difficult to assign a role to that mutation and to say, oh, if the virus has a mutation at the receptor binding domain, then it's definitely going to be an immune escapee or it's going to be more efficient at host cell entry. That's not necessarily a one-for-one -one match. And we see mutations all over the spike protein, including in places we don't know the function of that might be important when it all folds up and does its job, but it's just really hard to get that data. So the virus is evolving. How much of that evolution translates to things we really need to be concerned about, like transmissibility, immune escapee, and why is really an active and exciting and important area of research. Are you willing to speak to the future of what you see this virus doing and behaving? I can throw out some conjectures. I would love conjecture. <laughs> as long as we label it as such, as long as we know. Yeah, and you know, in science, we call them hypotheses, right? There's many multiple hypotheses about the way this can go. So I study virus evolution. I look at the genetic sequences of the virus and we try to put viruses in a comparative framework to look at how other viruses that are related have behaved and learned from that. So SARS-CoV-2, its family tree includes SARS, the first SARS, which actually we were very successful of driving to extinction, at least in humans. The family also includes MERS, Middle Eastern Respiratory Virus Syndrome, which is still out there. It's actually out there big time in camels right now. It's definitely a thing to watch. But it also the, a little bit more distantly related than even MERS is human coronaviruses. So there's at least four lineages of human coronaviruses that some of which do cause common cold-like symptoms. So if someone gets a cold, so about 10 to 30% of all common colds are caused by human coronaviruses that probably jumped into humans from a zoonotic event, a bat. I think it's allergies. I don't know if I've had any 
cat encounters lately. The jump was a long time ago. Believe me, this dude you would have gotten from a human, but happened 100 years ago or more. So the records aren't good enough to say whether it came in virulent, but certainly now members of this family have settled into a pattern where they're highly transmissible, but they're not highly virulent. And immunity wanes. We're seeing that now with this virus. So it could roll that way. It could kind of settle into an endemic state where we just live with waning immunity, constant priming through sort of normal day-to-day activities, and it's not as virulent as it is today. This makes me think of uh, S1N1, right, which we were at one point calling swine flu. And what we knew about that ultimately was that it was collecting mutations as it went back and forth or among a variety of mammals and birds. And so I watched your breakfast talks for the California Academy of Sciences. And in the most recent one, in January, you referred to B117 and talked about mutations that had accumulated, right? There was a sort of predictable rate of mutation. And then there was this jump. I didn't know if B117 was Delta, if, if that was... It's Alpha. Okay. So... We don't quite know anything about the virulence, but does that huge jump like that tell us anything about what's happening in humans? Is there something that humans now are doing to influence that mutation? I gave you kind of the best case scenario with human coronavirus, but the other way this could roll is more like an Uber flu, right? Where we have to be vaccinated every year because the target is moving. So for coronavirus too, it's a mix of immunity maybe waning, but also the target has moved. There's a mismatch here. And this is more virulent than flu, than seasonal flu, and way more virulent than the swine flu pandemic, which was really more mild than seasonal flu. So it's evolving more quickly, it turns out. Estimates vary, but I I read that it's evolving five times more quickly than flu. And it's already, you know, generally more virulent than flu. And it's probably more transmissible than flu. So why is it evolving faster? Like, are we driving up evolutionary rates? Certainly just being willing partners in fostering huge population sizes of viruses globally. We are the best Petri dish ever for them, aren't we? Yes. In a heterogeneous mix of boom and bust cycles, it's like, yeah, we're really helping. We are definitely helping spur evolutionary innovation in these virus populations by keeping them large and rich and diverse and robust and ongoing. So we're doing our part. A big question when we look at the evolutionary rates of this virus is also mapping where those evolutionary events occur. And there's a lot, a lot in the spike protein and a lot around or involved in some way with the receptor binding domain. And so the first question that comes up is, are our therapeutics, our our monoclonal antibody therapies, or even our own immune systems selecting for higher rates of evolution at these sites that might be important along the lines of how use of antibodies can spur heightened rates of antibody resistance, evolution of antibody resistance. So those questions are still out there. In the case of the alpha variant, the B117 variant, there was this huge jump in the accumulation of mutations, and then it leveled off and picked up an evolutionary rate that was more standard. And so one of the hypotheses behind that was that maybe it was a long COVID event or someone with a diminished immune system or immune compromised person that had hosted a long stint of the virus, kind of like the way we can be chronically infected with hepatitis C or HIV. It creates a lot of within-host evolution and a lot of immune escape and treatment-related selective evolution, adaptive evolution. And so the thought was maybe that this landscape of 
short infection mixed with sort of these longer infections, long COVID or long infections in immunocompromised people that are treated with monoclonals, maybe the heterogeneity of those experiences is creating an opportunity for within host evolution for therapy resistance or vaccine resistance. But these are big questions. We don't really know why alpha occurred. And if alpha had been the only thing But we are getting these new lineages, and they're not all descendants of Alpha, although they're all descendants of Douglas. So I think that it is a question, like, what is driving this evolutionary rate? And then let's also be very clear and just say it and push it. What is one of the best ways to stop this evolution from happening? What can people do right now? Get your vaccine. (laughs) So vaccines. Get your damn vaccine. Get your kids vaccinated. We have an amazing array of vaccine tools. It's the best tool, hands down the best tool. It's extremely safe. And not only does it protect you, but it protects your loved ones. It protects the strangers around you if you have any kind of Christian values. You should want to protect people. And the important thing in viruses is the evolutionary potential of viruses is comes back down to this idea of large population sizes and these opportunities, these long chains of transmission. So if you can stop being a willing participant in a chain of transmission, don't be a host. Even if you feel great and you feel strong and you're healthy and you know you're fine, don't be a host because you can infect other people and you can extend those long chains of transmission and better set the virus up for more adaptive evolution innovation that will cause more transmissible variants and more potentially virulent variants to come up. So don't do it. Take yourself out of the equation. Do not be a link in the chain. What I wanted to ask about is public health measures and what the science is doing. And in your talk, you mentioned a couple things that sound intriguing, but I didn't know what they are, so I wanted to ask you. So the One Health or the Natural Systems approach that you mentioned, what are those? There was a news alert this morning that coronavirus can spread through white-tailed deer. And, you know, a few many, many moons ago, we heard about the mink outbreak, right, in Europe, in Denmark, of coronavirus. We already knew and know that this family of viruses circulates in bats and can jump into a range of other mammals. So SARS-1 came via civet cats. This whole family of viruses can infect raccoon dogs, which are not dogs. You know, MERS infects camels. I mean, we know this is a family of viruses that is very ubiquitous in terms of the receptors they use are in many, many kinds of mammals. They can easily infect a lot of different kinds of mammals and different tissue types. So, that, so you know, you get it through your nasopharyngeal, but it's actually really good at getting into your liver and, you know, different cell types too. So it's all part of why we need to be aware of how we are interacting with viruses and other potential pathogens in natural landscapes. And that is what we think about when we talk about quite literally the one health approach is usually mostly focused on how exchange of pathogens and viruses happen between humans and domestic or agricultural animals, which is super important for influenza. But then there's also many leaders that focus on something called eco-health. There's actually a really amazing nonprofit called EcoHealth Alliance, which has been studying the emergence of bat viruses and other viruses and how humans actually, you know, having viruses out there in nature is totally fine. The world is teeming with viruses. And most of the time they can stay there and we can stay here. 
but it's really where the humans and nature are in contact in a way that perturbs that balance. It's something humans do, right? We take in these wild animals like civet cats and raccoon dogs and we farm them. They were just wild not too long ago. And so then we hold them in these massive temporary farms and then we move them into markets where people are. And so we, we've created these pipelines with other bat viruses like Nipah and Hendra. We destroy habitats that then the bats, then the flying foxes that host these viruses come around agricultural settings where they eat fruit from orchards and fruit in pig farms, and then they spill over into pigs and their handlers. And, you know, normally they'd just be in nature. Or in, in many places where Ebola or Marburg spill out, it's through uh, people with huge challenges for food security, which have no protein and they're hunting bushmeat to survive. And some of the easiest things to kill are non-human primates that have Ebola because they're sick or dying anyway, or the bats themselves that have these pathogens. And so we really have to think about the whole picture. We're in a system increasingly the, you know, the fastest, most rapidly expanding ecosystem on the planet is urban ecosystems and probably agricultural is the next. So, you know, we are coming up against natural systems more and more, and we need to understand the distribution of virus diversity in natural systems and how we connect with them and then port them into urban systems where things can blow up into pandemics. We just interviewed Erin Riley, who is an ethnoprimatologist, and her conversations with us was really from a similar perspective about saying you cannot study any animal independent of the system because there have always been these interactions happening. And if you're doing it that way, you're doing a disservice to the science and all of the species involved. So I think your case makes that point very elegantly. I agree. So what's next for you? What do you have on the horizon? What are you working on? One of the things I'm really excited about is that I'm part of this NIH Centers for Research in Emerging Infectious Diseases. It's many, many institutions around the world. But the things that excite me, it's all about partnership between U.S. scientists and scientists in countries all over the world and building the capacity to train students in those countries, build public health research connections in those countries, build surveillance capacity, tracking capacity, distribution of vaccines and therapeutic capacity. And I'm mostly excited about the discovery, the discovery in natural systems and in human coupled natural systems of the next coronavirus. And I think the silver lining of coronavirus is we build a lot of tools to interact with people all over the world over this new digital medium. And so when we couldn't get to the field, we've been doing intense sort of online trainings and courses in new technologies for sequencing viruses, including coronavirus, but also other viruses that people can get from uh, primates and mosquitoes using very portable technologies like, you know, the little Oxford nanopore minion, which is the size of a chocolate bar and can run off a battery in a solar panel. So really uh, working on different ways of, of building capacity and sampling large scapes of potential virus reservoirs and working with people so that we're not doing it as parachute scientists or in a top-down manner, but we're really developing long-lasting partnerships. So... That's what I'm excited about. And I'm guessing this um, pandemic uh, has kept you busy. But here you are in Alabama giving a talk. What else do you do? We want to know about the full scientist in person. And, and we imagine this is consuming a lot of your mental and physical energy. But, you know, just like we encourage everyone else during this pandemic to, like, kind of have a life so you don't burn out. 
we imagine the scientists probably have to find some way to get released as well. So so what do you do for fun? Yeah. So, you know, luckily I've always been kind of outdoorsy. I like to hike. And actually that was my, you know, safe space. I live in a place really close to the Golden Gate National Recreation Area in, in San Francisco. And miles and miles of places to hike and walk and range. And you so you feel like a free range chicken, except you're a free range human, right? And you can just get out there. And I, like many other people, got myself a COVID puppy. So he's a really cute guy. His name is Stitch. So I used to be in Hawaii, and so he's named after Leland Stitch. Oh. And when we first got him, he really could shred an SUV in about 30 seconds. Yeah, he's really... I can't believe it. He was really good. Does Stitch go on hikes with you? Yeah, he's great. He loves... He's a birder, so he's really... He's an English pointer, so he points out birds. But he's been our adventure dog. Yeah. The other thing we did, the you know, when we lived in Hawaii, you know, you're on an island and road trips aren't really a thing. You can circumnavigate Oahu in like six and a half hours if the traffic's not bad. So the first thing we did when we got back to the mainland was we bought an old Westphalia camper van, one of those ones with the pop-ups, Volkswagens. And we got a Synchro, which is four-wheel drive. So it's just become, I don't know if you guys ever watched Jurassic Park 2 with that Airstream trailer that they helicoptered into the middle of this island off Costa Rica. I was such a fan. So the California Academy of Sciences, we have this program called iNaturalist where you take pictures of nature and, and identify them. I love it. And so we go out in our Westphalia camp. During COVID, we camped so much because it felt like a wonderful place to be outside and wave at other people outside your pod and have campfires and collect mosquitoes. I mean, I'm a virologist, so I, let, I collect mosquitoes sometimes. I take pictures on iNaturalist and I camp and range up and down in our Westphalia with our dog. And I have a 16-year-old daughter that is not too sick of us, a little bit, a little bit sick of us, but She's awesome. Well, that's good. You've inspired my husband and I have been toying with the idea of getting a teardrop camper trailer and we cannot pull the trigger on it. So if you've ever been to New Zealand, you know, they have this kind of free lifestyle where you can almost camp anywhere. Like it's not really too frowned upon. And I think COVID has kind of driven us all out into that mentality. Like you see people camping in the craziest places, but there's this whole like camping culture. So I'm a fan. Now, as a virologist who collects mosquitoes when they're biting you, what do you what do you do? So I am also very attractive to mosquitoes. And so I have no problem getting them to come and land. And if you are uh, a little bit of a masochist or a sadist, you know, you can like actually watch them sort of start to probe. And once they just once they just start to probe, so what creates the mosquito bite is actually that they're drooling a whole bunch of junk into your wound. And mosquitoes have these like needle-like tongue with a canal that sucks the blood up once, but they, they're cutting through and they're drooling a lot of junk in there to melt your tissues and get the cut. And once they start doing that, they're really focused. And then you can just pop a tube on top. I'm not recommending this to general audiences. The most important thing is that once the blood flows, then you really are could potentially at risk for West Nile or what have you. If, if you're in California or the U.S. West Nile, we're not going to get a lot of dengue or Zika up here. But And there's a lot of other viruses in California. Anyway, don't do this at home. But I do sometimes let them get a little settled in and then I pop them in a tube. If you let them get that far right into the cutting part, you're going to get a welt. It's much more graceful than waving your arms around and kicking and screaming like I do. Why me? Oh, 
No, but you know, I travel always with a hand net. If you have a hand net, you could just, instead of waving your arms, you just scoop them up with the net. And then not only are you popular with all your friends and mosquito free, but you've got a net full of mosquitoes that you can like squish later. <laughs> I keep them, but you can squish them. Or pop in the mail to you. Yeah, right. <laughs> I got a lot. Thanks. <laughs> anyway, Shannon, we could probably talk to you for hours on end, but they have you scheduled like down to the minute. So thank you so, so much for taking the time to talk with us today with something that's perhaps the most relevant talk and interview we've had. And it's been an absolute delight. So thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. This was so fun. I got to say shit and we talked about crevices and it's just, it's been a blast. Welcome to the sausage of science. <laughs> this is what we are like. <laughs> I love it. I hope someday our paths cross again because it was really wonderful talking with you. Thank you. Me too. I've got some stories to tell about. When I was studying nematodes, I would put condoms on fishes to try to collect the nematodes coming out of their feces. And I couldn't get all the air out of the condom, so the fish would end up swimming around, like, all tilted up. So then I would put BBs in the tip of the condom to weight them back the other way, and then they'd swim this way. And so it took... My karmic debt to fishes is deep and bad. It rivals my one to mosquitoes, so... We need to do, like, five more episodes with you. Indeed. Yeah. The university never did reimburse me for the condoms that I had to buy for those fish. They really objected. Yeah, they don't have a purchasing department with the condom vendor, do they? And for the f small fishes, I had to buy finger cots. And you'd think that, like I said, like I, I'm clearly not using these for their intended purpose if I'm also buying finger cots and three sizes of condoms. I think you can see the pattern here. There's a range of fish sizes I'm accommodating here. And they're like, I don't think so. Go away. My university would just go, oh, it's him again. Okay, whatever. I hope you plan to write books because you have opening leads for like dozens of chapters all these stories anyway right again wonderful chatting with you and yeah enjoy the rest of your trip safe travels thank you thank you be well